Well, last week we covered one of the elementary truths of Scripture, and that was the elementary truth of faith, which doesn't seem very elementary at all, but that's what Scripture calls it in Hebrews 5. We're going to move on, and this week we are going to talk about repentance and, hopefully if there's time, the resurrection of the dead. Now, in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, we see uh, as it builds on the uh, chapter before talking about these being elementary, it says, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of doctrines of baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. In other words, there's a couple of things here that are very important. That repentance, first of all, what does it mean? In Greek, it's to change your mind, to turn back to God, to stop what you're doing, and to do the opposite. You know, don't just stop watching things that you shouldn't be watching on TV, but now run to God. Run towards Him. So stop moving away and move towards Him. Another thing that I want you to see is that when we become a believer, it is not the law that is our primary motivator. It says, we're to leave the elementary teachings of Christ and move on to maturity, move on to truth, it said in chapter 5. Move on to something greater, meatier, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works. In other words, when you become a believer, you start walking after God, and you don't need to lay again time and a time and time again this repentance from dead works. Now, what I'm saying is that we, I'm not saying, I should say, that we don't need to ever repent again. But what I'm saying is that if we have to keep preaching repentance, somebody has not moved on to maturity. And so he's saying that these are things that really should just go on and, but not something that remains the focus of our teaching all the time. The problem is, is this has gone too far, we might say, today. And uh, I will explain that as we move on. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says this, The Lord is not slack or slow concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering or patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I love this verse because it basically is saying this, guys, that God is not willing that any should perish. You know what that means? He didn't create people to go to hell. Now, in his foreknowledge and his omniscience, he knows people will, but he's not willing. In other words, that is not his heart. His heart is that all would come to repentance. You see, the gospel message is for everybody, the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. But he who does not believe in him stands condemned. You see, there's two sides to this as well. We always hear about, hey, you know, Jesus died for you, love him, but we forget the part that if you don't believe in him, you're condemned. You see, the elementary teaching isn't supposed to be wiped away from 
the church. It's not supposed to be stopped being preached for everyone, but it is important, especially for the ungodly. You see, the parable, remember where Jesus leaves the 99 sheep just to go find the one that was lost, that is the heart of God. That is the heart of Jesus, that nobody should repent. But the devil is out there telling a lot of you listening, oh, it's too late for you. Uh, you're worthless. If you only knew the things that I did, you might say. Well, that is a lie of the devil. Because God's will, he is not wanting anyone to perish and that you do come to repentance. So that once you do that, you can move on from that and go on to some meaty teachings, teachings of righteousness. But do note that if you do not repent, you will perish. The elementary teaching is important. It's just like when you are teaching somebody to write, you first have to learn to recognize the letters before you can start making words. You need to first repent before you can move on to the teachings of righteousness. The problem is, is I think that too many today have gone straight to the teachings of righteousness and we've left this elementary teaching behind. Matthew 3 verse 1, it says that in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Note John the Baptist came before Jesus. He came to prepare the way for Jesus. No one greater of a woman ever born was greater than John the Baptist, Jesus said. Why? I believe because of what his ministry was about, a ministry of repentance. One of these elementary truths, one of these things, these first steps of coming into a church. Okay, You don't preach teachings of righteousness hoping that people will come to church. You preach repentance so that when they come to church, they will learn the teachings of righteousness. We see in Luke chapter 24 verse 47, Jesus is instructing the disciples to go share the message of repentance. And he says that repentance and remission of sins, forgiveness, should be preached in his name, Jesus' name, to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Not just to some, it's for everybody. It's for every single person listening. You see, I want you to notice the structure that you repent and then you receive the remission of sins. This is the opposite of what seems to be preached so many places today. They're skipping this step of repentance. They're stripping the fear of God away. And it's just about God loving. God loves you. God loves you. Let me show you what David Wilkerson said way back in the 1970s. He said, God hates the lukewarm gospel of half-truths that is now spreading over the globe. This gospel says, just believe in Jesus and you will be saved. There's nothing more to it. It ignores the whole counsel of God, which speaks of repenting from former sins, of taking up your cross, of being conformed to the image of Christ by the refining work of the Holy Spirit. It's totally silent about the reality of hell, 
in an after-death judgment. You see, fear of God is not being preached today. That's what he's saying. We're ignoring the whole counsel of God. We're ignoring the elementary truths and which speak of repenting. And we're going right up to the fact that, hey, Jesus loves you, and it's totally silent about the reality of hell and the afterlife, of judgment. We need to stop uh, preaching the meaty truths without first the elementary truths. Uh, you know, we have what used to be called seeker-sensitive churches. That term has kind of gone astray, but it's still there. What happens is many churches are looking for those who are seeking God. But by seeking God, I'm not so sure that's what they're seeking. I think what that means is that they're seeking something that they want. They're seeking a better life. They're seeking more money. They've got problems. And so they say, oh, you know, I'm going to go to church and see. They're seeking fellowship. They're seeking uh, companions. They're seeking all kinds of things, but not really God. And what the church seems to keep giving them in general is that very thing. What would you like to see in church? Let's take a survey to see what you would like. Let's make sure we have our coffee shops. Let's make sure we see that the building is beautiful and looks pretty on the inside and the outside. Let's make sure that we've got somebody appointed to meet them at the door to greet them and make them feel welcome. We shouldn't have to appoint anybody to make someone feel welcome. If the Spirit is moving in that church, then you're going to be there welcoming people. But my point is, is it isn't what we want, it's what we need that needs to be preached. And what we need is to repent, to stop sinning, and to turn back to God. Now I could speak... The whole time just on this alone, but uh, I, I just think it's applicable here with what we see Wilkerson saying. Let's go back to scripture here, Jeremiah 23 verse 14. This false gospel that I'm talking about was in Israel as well. Look here, it says, also I have seen a horrible thing in the prophets of Jerusalem. They commit adultery and walk in lies. Now he's talking about committing adultery with God. They're cheating on him teaching these lies, walking in them, believing in them. It says they also strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns back, you could say, repent. Remember, that's what repentance is. So that no one turns back from his wickedness. In other words, if you don't preach repentance, you strengthen the hands of evildoers. Now they just feel good about themselves, and they're at the same time continuing to walk in, in a way that is contrary to God. And what does he say here in verse, the, in verse 16, Jeremiah 23? All of them are like Sodom to me, their inhabitants like Gomorrah. They continually say to those who despise me, the Lord has said you shall have peace. And to everyone who walks according to the dictates of his own heart, they say no evil shall come upon you. 
In other words, you're going to have peace. Jesus loves you. Everything's okay. You know, you're not going to need to repent. You don't need to do anything. Just kick back, relax, enjoy life, and chase after whatever this world has to offer. The dictates of your own heart. If you want it, if you desire it, God must want it for you too. No evil is going to come upon you. Basically, you can live like hell and get heaven. No, that is a lie. This is a horrible thing that the prophets in Jerusalem were saying. And this is a horrible thing that is being preached in so many churches today. What do you want? God wants you to have it too without any sign and uh, teaching of repentance. Repent of your sin. If you keep doing this, you're on a path to hell. We don't hear that anymore. Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher of the past, said this, the gospel is a reasonable system. It appeals to men's understanding. It's a matter for thought and consideration. It appeals to the conscience in reflecting powers. So he's talking about this gospel. It's reasonable. And we should contemplate it, not just take it you know, as some cheap thing, but that we should consider it because it appeals to the conscience and reflecting powers. Let's see. He's going to go on to explain. Hence, therefore, if we do not teach men something, we may shout, believe, believe, believe. But what are they to believe? Isn't that what we're doing? Come on, believe in Jesus and you're going to be saved. But people don't know who Jesus really is. They don't know what he requires. They don't know what he uh, is asking of them. It goes on, he says, each exhortation requires a corresponding instruction or it will mean nothing. Escape from what? This requires for its answer the doctrine of the punishment of sin. You see, if we're not we say, oh, you need to repent of your sins and be so general. The person sitting in the pew who is caught in pornography, addicted to that, is thinking, well, this is okay. God made me this way, and, and it's only natural. I'm not hurting anyone. And by the way, all of those things are lies. They need to know you need to escape from this sin because you are on a path to hell. Spurgeon goes on, he says, fly, but whither? To where? Then must you preach Christ in his wounds, yes, in the clear doctrine of atonement by sacrifice. You see, first they need to know that they have to escape, they have to repent, then they run or fly to God, and we see a clear doctrine of salvation, a clear doctrine of your sins have been wiped away and a doctrine of righteousness after the elementary teachings. Spurgeon goes on, he says, repent of what? Here you must answer such questions as, what is sin? What is sin? Sin, according to the Bible, it defines it, sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness. In other words, disobeying God's law. Do we hear that today? 
he goes on, he says, what is sin? What is the evil of sin? What are the consequences of sin? Be converted. But what is it to be converted? By what power can we be converted? What from? What to? The field of instruction is wide if men are to be made to know the truth which saves. You see, people are preaching Jesus, and that's it. That's the only message we're really hearing from most churches today is, oh, Jesus loves you. Come to Jesus and you'll be saved. But they don't even know who Jesus is. They don't even know about what repentance is, let alone what to repent from. We don't have sound doctrine. It isn't about Jesus and knowing him. It's about what Jesus can give me beyond salvation. I want a new house. I just want to be happy. I don't want to go through any suffering. I don't want any persecution. Well, guys, which of the apostles did not suffer? Which of the apostles had, you know, pure happiness? I think they had joy, uh, but not happiness all the time. We, we clearly see that in Scripture. These guys were persecuted for their faith. And yet this is what the Bible tells us. That we are to consider the cost before you begin building a house. Consider what it means to be a Christian before you sign up for it. We could go on all day just talking about this very thing. But Psalm 119 verse 9 says this, How can a man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. So what does it mean to turn back? Take hold of the commands of God. Don't be lawless. Apply those laws to your life. Leonard Ravenhill, another great preacher, said, there's a difference between changing your opinion and changing your lifestyle. Leonard Ravenhill saw that the gospel wasn't just a concept, but it was a change and transformation. You see, it wasn't just a concept of, oh, I'm going to come to church. I'm a Christian because I go to church. I'm a Christian because I pray at night. Because I know who God is. Well, so does the devil. The devil knows God and even shudders. You see, it's more than just a concept. It's a transformation of your life. It means that your heart is changed and you no longer desire to live in sin. You no longer are going to love pornography. You will hate it. You will repent of it, and you will recognize it as sin because your heart has been changed, a heart that wants to follow after God and His commands. Again, we can look at Charles Spurgeon building on this, that how can a man cleanse his way? By taking heed to God's commands, His Word. Spurgeon said it this way, Faith which refuses to obey the commands of the Savior is a mere pretense and will never save the soul. In other words, to say, I go to church, but you're not obeying God. You're lying to yourself, and you are not going to be saved. He goes on, if the professed convert distinctly and deliberately declares that he knows the Lord's will, but does not mean to attend to it, you are not to pamper his presumptions, but it is your duty to assure him that he is not saved. How many times do we hear that being preached? 
you're not saved. You're lying to yourself because you're declaring that you know the Lord's will, but you have no intention to follow it. He says, you can't pamper people who believe these things. You can't pamper them and make sure that they have their warm coffee and a beautiful building to come into and make them feel as if they're saved because they're going to church or praying. God says that God even hates the prayers of those who turn a deaf ear to his law. Proverbs 28, 9. David admitted, he said, God would not listen to my prayers if I had held iniquity in my heart. Now again, not that if you have a sin in your life, but if you hold it in your heart, yeah, absolutely. And that's what I love about what uh, Spurgeon says here, that you don't mean to attend to it. If that's the attitude of your heart, you are not saved. And I'm telling you, people are going to come against you in the church for saying this. They're going to say, oh, you're a legalist. Okay, well, listen, this is exactly what Scripture is telling you. How can a young man cleanse his way? Take heed, pay attention, follow God's word. If you, I mean, if you don't follow God's word, would it not stand to, to say the opposite is true? That a young man's way is not clean? Ezekiel 33 verse 8 says, When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die. That's what Ravenhill, uh, uh, Spurgeon was saying there. You're going to go to hell. We should be telling the wicked this. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you're going to die. You're going to hell. He says, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way that the wicked man shall die in his iniquity. If you fail to say you're going to hell, he said, his blood I will require at your hand. I'm going to blame you for not warning him that he's going to hell because of his lifestyle. So next time that you are uncomfortable in... in uh, telling somebody that they need to repent and calling their, their their sin out because you're afraid that you might lose their friendship, you're afraid that they, they might be angry at you, you're afraid that people might think that you're legalistic, then remember this verse. Because he's saying, I'm going to blame you for not telling them. That's exactly what this says. James 5 verse 19 says, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, there's that repentance again, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Notice that he still has sins, but they're covered. That's the thing. We're not expecting people to be perfect. I'm far from perfect, but our heart is changed the law is now on our heart, and if we are deadening that conviction, then there's something wrong. You see, this verse here in James is talking about salvation. We need to remember this when witnessing, because we are pulling people out of the fire. That's what we are doing in warning people and preaching repentance. Again, we looked at this verse 9 in Psalm 119. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. But it goes on, with my whole heart 
I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. This is why it's so important to have his word in our minds, in our hearts, that we should be committing scripture to memory. I'll tell you what, turn off the TV, get off of Facebook and put a scripture verse to memory. Let you not wander from God's commandments. He says, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. In other words, you memorize those commandments. You put God's word as a major part of your life. And he's, he's saying there's the power in that to keep you from sinning against God. The heart of one who embraces the gospel is whatever you say, Lord. Not, well, I want to do this, so let's conform God's thoughts to mine. Let's worship God the way I want to worship him. No, whatever you say, Lord, how you say I will worship you, that's what I'm going to do. How you say that I should walk in my life, that's what I'm going to do. A delusion is having just enough Christianity so that when we go to bed at night, we feel comfortable. We think we're doing just fine. There's nothing that needs to be changed. Second Chronicles chapter 33, verse 1. We're going to see a real-life example of this in one of the kings of Israel. His name was Manasseh. He was one of the most wicked kings of all Judah. It says this, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. He reigned 55 years in Jerusalem, but he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. In other words, he conformed to the patterns of the world, to the culture of the world. He didn't look different. He wasn't separate from the world. Verse 3 goes on, For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had broken down. In other words, Hezekiah, by the way, was a very godly man, and he got rid of these pagan altars. This guy, he, he rebuilds these pagan altars. He raised up altars for the Baals, it says, and made wooden images, and he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. It goes on in verse 4, He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. He built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Verse 6, he caused also his sons to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. In other words, he was worshiping the god of Molech, or the god Molech, where they would take this bronze statue and heat up the arms of this statue till they were red hot, and then stick their children, burning them alive offering them as a sacrifice to this God on his arms. It says he practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft and sorcery. In other words, he was a witch. He practiced witchcraft. It says as well, he consulted mediums and spiritists. Oh, this man was very spiritual, just following the wrong spirits. It goes on, he did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. By the way, this is the spirit, ultimately, of the Antichrist. He built these false altars 
in God's house, bringing pagan gods into God's house. This is what Daniel speaks about. So when you see in the corner of the temple the abomination that causes desolation, this is what we see many uh, pictures or foreshadowing of the Antichrist throughout history. Antiochus brought a pig and he, he, he slaughtered the pig into the altar. They brought uh, statues of Zeus into God's house. That's a picture of the Antichrist. And honestly, I see this in the church today, many Antichrists that have brought pagan things into God's house. What are pagan things? Well, I, I think the scripture tells us that, doesn't it? Anyway, Second Chronicles 33 continues in verse 11 saying, Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the captains of the armies of the kings of Assyria, who took Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze fetters, and carried him off to Babylon. So, therefore, meaning because of all this wickedness that Manasseh had done, he allowed the Assyrians to come, capture Jerusalem, and they put hooks. Uh, they would do it sometimes in their nose or in their jaw, and they would literally lead their captives back. And that's what happened to Manasseh. But verse 12 says this, Now, when he was in affliction, basically, he was at the lowest of lows. Okay? It says, his God, when he was uh, in his affliction, he implored the Lord his God, humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers, and prayed to him. And he received his entreaty, heard his supplication, and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Guys, I'm telling you, I do not want it to go this far for you. I do not want God to have to have a therefore in your life. Therefore, because you refused to repent of your sins. Therefore, because you refused to stop watching pornography. Therefore, because you refused to stop cheating the government on your taxes. Therefore, because you refused to stop using this foul language and telling dirty jokes or whatever the case might be, that there's an addition to that, that he allows some evil thing to come into your life. You know, Psalm 119 verse 71 says, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. You see, affliction, unfortunately, it, that's what it takes for many to turn to God. It becomes a critical turning point for people when they become afflicted, when they get cancer, when they get in a car accident, when they do whatever the case might be, because God has to knock them down, has to give them great affliction, so that they will finally turn and look towards Him. They take God has to take away our comfort before we will give Him our attention. And you know what, though? This is exactly what so many in the churches are trying to do. We want to remove all affliction. We want to remove anything that makes us feel uncomfortable and make you feel as comfortable, restful, peaceful, and feed the flesh as much as possible when you come to church. See, the power of repentance, though, is seen here in these verses as well. Once he had that affliction, what did he do? He humbled himself. He prayed, 
And what was the power of repentance? He was brought back to his kingdom. And he knew the Lord. Do you want to know God? Do you want to really truly know the Lord more? Then you need to step out of your comfort zone. And you need to humble yourself. You need to pray to him. You need to be in his word. And you know what's going to happen? God is going to reveal himself to you. He humbled himself and he prayed. Again, that is part of the formula of repentance. Humble yourself. Stop walking in your pride and of saying, I'm okay. I, 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 well, I'm concerned what this person's going to think. And repent. Pray to God and know him. Second Chronicles 7, verse 14, we see the same thing that Manasseh did is an outline, again, of this structure of repentance. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, exact same thing that Manasseh did. And it says, and turn from their wicked ways, then, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Guys, we keep going and saying, oh, God bless this country. God bless America. Why should he bless this country? If we have not humbled ourselves, if we have not stood outside those abortion mills, and, and we have not stood for, for the uh, innocent bloodshed that is going on in this country, I'll tell you something. With this coronavirus, there should have been way more people, way more lives saved by stopping abortion than ever could have died of the coronavirus. But yet, in some cases, we saw that you couldn't even get, you know, a knee surgery, an elective surgery, but you could still kill your baby in some states. Psalm 119, verse 71, again, here it is. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Oh, that we would not have to be afflicted to learn the statutes of God, but that we would repent in this country and that we would stand up against the evils that are everywhere in society, the pornography, the abortion, the liberal politics, the liberal theologies. But I fear that we are about to come into some great affliction because it's the only way that people will humble themselves, pray, seek God, and turn from their wicked ways. So guys, when these afflictions come to your life, I pray that you would learn God's statutes, that you would remember this message, that you would remember these verses. Now, I do need to put in here as well, I'm not saying that every time something bad happens in life that it's because of your sins. Okay, That's not it either. We live in a fallen world. But I will tell you this, you'd be wise to examine yourself to to you know, reflect on your life, reflect on what you're doing. You know, we do have in the Apocrypha what's called the Prayer of Manasseh. And I'm just going to read this just because I think it does add on to what we do see the Scriptures already saying, that he recognized he was a sinner. But I think there's value in seeing his heart here. He says, Thou, O Lord, according to thy great goodness 
hast promised repentance and forgiveness to them that have sinned against thee. Remember at the start I said, guys, we don't even have the power. We don't even have the power to repent on our own. And this is why we need God. And it's, I'm so glad that God is willing that none should perish. That means that he is empowering you. Nobody comes to the Father unless Jesus draws him. And nobody comes to Jesus unless the Father draws him. You see, we can't repent on our own, but God, since he's not willing that any should perish, has given you the Spirit. He's left us with the Spirit. He's left us with, with the ability. He wants you to repent. And this is what he's saying. According to thy great goodness has promised repentance. Basically promised that he would give me the ability to repent. And forgiveness to them that have sinned against thee. And of thine infinite mercies has appointed repentance unto sinners. See, it's God's mercy that has allowed sinners to repent, that they may be saved. Goes on, thou therefore, O Lord, that art the God of the just, hast not appointed repentance to the just, as to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, which have not sinned against thee? But thou hast appointed repentance unto me, that am a sinner. He is recognizing himself to be a sinner. That is one of the first steps of repentance, folks. He goes on, For I have sinned above the number of the sands of the sea. He isn't just a little sinner. He's recognizing he is great. He says, My transgressions, O Lord, are multiplied. My transgressions are multiplied, and I am not worthy to behold and see the height of heaven for the multitude of my iniquities. I am bowed down with many iron bands that I cannot lift up mine head Neither have any release, for I have provoked thy wrath and done evil before thee. I did not thy will, neither kept I thy commandments. I have set up abominations, I have multiplied offenses. Now therefore I bow the knee of mine heart, beseeching thee of grace. Guys, this is what repentance looks like. Notice his confession. Notice then he repents of what he's been doing, and then he prays for God's mercy and grace. And guess what? He got it. I like this verse that says he's bowed down with many iron bands. That shows his great affliction, his bondage. I mean, I would say most people listening to this haven't experienced the kind of bondage and suffering that this man went through. I mean, to, to lose his whole kingdom, not just a house, not just money, to, to have uh, the Assyrians come and lead him away with hooks piercing his face and uh, being taken and put in prison. But many today feel this way. And the sad thing is, is that they don't know what to do. Many people right now listening feel like they are bowed down with many iron bands. Maybe it isn't being put in prison. Maybe it's just great depression. Maybe it's just great sorrow. Maybe it's just great uh, sadness because of your position in your job or your life, whatever it is, and you don't know what to do. Maybe God has given you great affliction through cancer or some other physical ailment. Well, examine your life, and if you have been living 
a lawless life, meaning you, you haven't been deliberately chasing after God, then maybe what you really need to do is repent. Chase after God. Pray to Him. And see if He does not bring you back to your kingdom. Second Chronicles 33 verse 12 says, Now when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed to him. We saw this before. But again, I wanted to highlight this once more. And he received his entreaty, heard his supplication, brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Guys, the, the, the great reward here was not getting to go back to Jerusalem, not receiving his kingdom back. And I think that's part of the problem is that when we repent today, what we're expecting is we want our kingdom back. We want our money back, our house back, our health back. But guys, the real reward isn't that. The real reward is that then Manasseh knew the Lord, that we would know the Lord. You know, in Scripture, it says, Teach me your ways, O Lord, that I might know you. That is the reward. But I think that our heart, we need to repent of what's in our heart. Our heart is really, truly, Bless me, O Lord. Give me. Take away my suffering, my affliction, when it should be, Lord, bless me by knowing you. That's what we want. We're not here for our comfort. We're here for God to serve Him. That's the true result of repentance. Jeremiah 3.22, Return, you backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. This is the promise that we need to remember. You see, Manasseh even prayed that. He, he, he appealed to God's promises, and that's what we can do is appeal to God when we repent and say, God, you said that when we repent, you will heal me. You will heal my backslidings. You will heal my heart so that I have a heart for you. Nehemiah, another example, chapter 1, verse 7, it says, We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Now, a little background here. We see Nehemiah uh, they are coming back out of Babylon from being captives. And they're recognizing that they were captives because of not obeying God. Their afflictions were because they were not following God's commandments. In verse 80 says, Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. So they're going back and remembering and saying, you know what, God, you are just in bringing these afflictions on us because you even commanded us that if we were unfaithful, you would do this. By the way, those promises still stand for us today. But he goes on in verse 10, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out of the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. You see that? 
not only will God, has he promised that he is going to scatter and bring affliction to your life if you don't obey, he says, but if you do, he says, then I'm going to gather you and you are going to be my people. I will redeem you. Repent and God will gather you from the lowest depths of your sin, from the lowest depths of your life. If you're in some kind of addiction to drugs, pornography, greed, whatever, confess, repent and pray, weep over your sins and let God be faithful to his promise. And you can even remind him of this promise and say, God, you even said that if I would repent, that you would do this. And by the way, repenting isn't just words. Okay, It's a change in the action of your life. Ezekiel 33, verse 11. We see, say to them as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? See, God doesn't desire that you die in, in your sins. He desires that all men repent. That's what he wants. And guys, if you will do that, he will empower you to do it. If you have a heart for it, you pray to him. You see, the Pharisees were, were very much like this, like what we are today. Remember, God, Jesus, at the time Jesus went and he told them, he says, you know, you need to turn from your wicked ways and, and, and stop doing what you're doing. And, and they said, you need to know the truth, Jesus said. Stop believing these lies. And their response to Jesus was, what are you talking about? We're children of Abraham. We know the truth. We've never been in bondage to anybody. We are already free. We're good. You see, they were trusting in their own righteousness. They were trusting in the heritage of them being a Jew. And they were trusting in God's promises without them obeying God's promises. That's what I mean by saying just because you go to church doesn't make you a child of Abraham. That's what the Pharisees said. Well, I'm a child of Abraham. I go to church. I give a tenth of my tithe. I, I keep God's commands. No, you were keeping man's commandments and breaking God's commandments in doing so. Today, there are people who are going to church, thinking they're keeping God's commands because they go to church, but yet they go home and they watch whatever filth is on the radio or on the TV. Okay? They, they think, well, I'm following God's commands. I, I pray at night. And yet, they're cheating on their taxes and they're, they're, they're stealing from uh, you know, loved ones, whatever the case might be. You're not a child of Abraham unless you do the things Abraham did, Jesus said. See, the Pharisees never turned away from their sins. They were proud of who they were. They took pride in being a Pharisee. Many take pride in the fact that they go to church. They take pride in the fact that they have a Bible in their house or a cross on their wall. But the Bible hasn't been opened. You're not reading it every day. You're not obeying God's commands. You don't know who God is. The same chapter here, Ezekiel 33, continues in verse 13. When I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, but he trusts in his own righteousness and commits iniquity, 
none of his righteous works shall be remembered. Did those Pharisees do some good things? Sure they did. Usually with the wrong motives for men to see it rather than God. But he's saying, if you're like those Pharisees trusting in your own righteousness because you go to church and you're continuing to live in sin, committing iniquity, none of your righteous works will be remembered. But because of the iniquity that you have committed, you will die. He's talking about hell here, folks. You know, today people tell me, well, you're trusted in your own righteousness by observing the Sabbath day. Uh, you know, how dare you? How dare you obey one of the Ten Commandments? No. You see, it's your rejection of God's law that you are trusting in your own unrighteousness. You're saying, oh, I don't need to obey God's commands. I go to church. I'm under grace. Well, you don't even understand what grace means. Being under grace doesn't mean you go get to live after the dictates of your own heart. Being under grace means I am forgiven. My sins have been wiped out. And because of that, I walk in the commandments of God by his strength and his power. Not to make me righteous, but because I've been made righteous. We obey in worship and in faith and in God's commands. Verse 14 goes on and says, Again, when I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and if he turns from his sin and does what is lawful and right. Notice if he just doesn't, well, if he turns from his sin and he stops practicing pornography and then goes and lives his life for his own self after the dictates of his own heart. No, it says if he turns from his sin and does what is lawful and right. What's lawful and right? God's commands. He is the one that gets to determine what's right. Verse 15, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has stolen, and walks in the statutes of life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of his sins which he has committed shall be remembered against him. He has done what is lawful and right. He shall surely live. Notice the difference there in verse 16. None of his sins are going to be remembered. But remember the person who walks in his own righteousness like the Pharisees? None of his righteousness will be remembered. Quite a contrast. There are many people who are living thinking that by their own righteous acts, by their own good works, they're going to get to heaven. Uh-uh. None of your righteous acts will be remembered. What God wants is you to turn from your evil ways because you know him and you rely on his strength, and then none of your sins will be remembered. Isn't that something? The person who gets comfortable in his salvation doesn't think he can lose it. So he begins to sin and have cheap grace in his life. His righteousness is forgotten. But then there's this wicked man who begins to obey God's commands, who may be the drunkard of the town, and all his sins are forgiven, forgotten. Guys, this is the truth of the gospel. Charles Spurgeon, again, going back to him, he says, I do not believe that any man can preach the gospel who does not preach the law. The law is the needle, and you cannot draw the silken thread of the gospel through a man's heart unless you first send the needle 
of the law to make way for it. If men do not understand the law, they will not feel that they are sinners, and if they are not consciously sinners, they will never value the sin offering Jesus. You see, there is no healing a man till the law has wounded him, no making him alive till the law has slain him. The more we cling, guys, to the Torah, to the law of God, the closer you will get to him. Don't throw away the law. Don't say, oh, that was an Old Testament thing. We don't need to, to keep the Sabbath today. That was only one of the Ten Commandments. And, you know, today it's okay. And I kind of keep the Sabbath because I go to church on Sunday and I, uh, you know, I, I, I don't work that day, but yet I go home and I follow the dictates of my own heart and I do what pleases me, not what pleases God. You see, this day is to be holy. Okay, the Sabbath. By the way, how about even that? When is the Sabbath? Today we see the church saying, oh, the Sabbath is Sunday. No, it's not. It's Saturday. Always has been, always will be. Now, and this message isn't about that, but do some searching and you'll see that it truly is a Saturday. Now, I worship on Saturday. I worship on Sunday. See, I'm going to worship every day of the week, but that doesn't change the fact that we are to keep the Sabbath holy. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 says, Not laying again the foundation of repentance and dead works of the faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and the laying on of hands, and of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. We were hoping, I was hoping to maybe get to this resurrection of the dead, but we're not going to have time for that here today. We will cover that on the next session. But again, we're not to lay again the foundation of repentance from dead works. An elementary truth, but yet we can see how important it is. But once we understand that, we can move on to the teachings of righteousness. That God has taken away all of our sins. Okay? That he will remember our sins no more. Because we already have this elementary teaching. We already know our letters. Now we can go write a book with those letters. Move on from the elementary teachings.